Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. Happy New Year. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season and a fantastic start to your 2018. It is indeed today, January 5th of the new year, 2018, and we're all still trying to figure out how to remember to write 2018 instead of 2017 on all those consent forms so that we don't have to go back and redo them. Today, I'm going to review neuromuscular blockade, and we will focus really on just the overview of how it works, the different receptors involved, the different medications that can be used. We're not going to talk about neuromuscular blockade reversal. I might mention it a couple times, but we're not going to go over that in detail. There's a separate ACRAC episode on Sugamidex, and we may uh, in the future do a little bit more on uh, other kinds of neuromuscular blockade reversal, such as neostigmine glycopyrrolate. Again, I may mention it today, but this podcast will focus on the blockade itself. Also, this podcast is going to be featured at anesthesiologynews.com which, as you know, is a fantastic independent monthly newspaper for anesthesiologists. They've got great archives, multimedia, web content. It's all right there at anesthesiologynews.com. Check it out, and they will, of course, be featuring this ACRAC episode along with some others they featured in the past. All right, let's get started. So neuromuscular blockade has an interesting history. The first real clinical use was in 1942 with D-tubocurarine. That was the first time it was really used in surgery until they find out that it actually had a six-fold increase in mortality. Succinylcholine came around in 1952, and then in subsequent years, different uh, neuromuscular blockers were developed. The idea here is that the neuromuscular junction has nicotinic acetylcholine receptors as opposed to muscarinic acetylcholine receptors elsewhere. And this, again, we're not going to get into this, but this is the key behind neuromuscular reversal with neostigmine and glycopyrrolate, for example, because the glycopyrrolate is an anti-muscarinic. So when you give something like neostigmine, which releases, essentially increases the concentration of acetylcholine everywhere, but you're able to block it with glycopyrrolate at muscarinic receptors, but it doesn't block it at nicotinic receptors, you essentially get the action just where you want it to reverse neuromuscular blockade at nicotinic receptors. And so when you're blocking the neuromuscular junction, you're doing it by blocking those nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Normally, those receptors are activated by, of course, acetylcholine. And acetylcholine has uh, activates an acetylcholine ion channel And to activate it, two molecules of acetylcholine have to bind at the same time to that channel. And so what neuromuscular blocking drugs do is they can block either one of those channels or both, but all they have to do is block one. And if they block one, then that channel can't open because it's being blocked from having two molecules of acetylcholine bind. That at least is how it works for non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers like rocuronium and vecuronium. The only depolarizing neuromuscular blocker in clinical use, of course, is succinylcholine. Succinylcholine works differently because, of course, it's a depolarizing agent. And what it does is produces a prolonged depolarization of the end plate. And what that does is it desensitizes the receptor, it inactivates sodium channels, and it increases the efflux of potassium, which, of course, is why you can get elevated potassium from succinylcholine. And it leads all these things together, lead to hyperpolarization, and therefore the inability to generate an action potential, which means you cannot cause a contraction of that muscle for a time after sucks has been used. The only other receptor that's involved uh, in today's episode are the fetal 
nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. These are the ones we will talk a little more about, but that can proliferate outside the neuromuscular junction or can spread when a neuromuscular junction is not being innervated when you get nerve injury or a burn injury or a spinal cord injury or something like that. And the what reason these are important is that they're resistant to non-depolarizers and they're extra sensitive to succinylcholine. And when they're activated by succinylcholine, they stay open longer and they let a lot more potassium out of the cell into the bloodstream. And so the problem here is the extreme hyperkalemia that you can get. This is why if you were to give succinylcholine to someone who had a condition that had led to a proliferation of nicotinic, fetal nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, that they could die from a hyperkalemic arrest. Their potassium could go from normal to 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and uh, obviously that may not be compatible with life. I should also mention that there are prejunctional receptors. So when we usually think about these receptors, we're talking about the ones that are postjunctional or that are after the neuromuscular junction at the uh, motor end plate. But there are some that are prejunctional, so they are on the nerve before it gets to the neuromuscular junction. And these actually serve a different purpose. So when these are uh, stimulated, they lead to positive feedback, make, meaning they make more acetylcholine available at the end plate to be released. These are sensitive to being blocked by non-depolarizers, but they are not sensitive to being activated or inactivated by succinylcholine. And so that's actually why, if you have ever tested for fade with a train-of-four monitor, or if you've read about this, you know that non-depolarizers, you get fade, meaning if someone is partially blocked by a non-depolarizer, meaning they have some twitches, but not full twitches and not no twitches, let's say they, they say they have four twitches, but there's fade, meaning the first twitch is strong, and then the second, third, and fourth progressively get weaker. That's called fade, and that occurs with non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers like rocuronium, vecuronium, cisatricurium, everything except succinylcholine. Succinylcholine, because it doesn't act on those prejunctional receptors, doesn't stop the increased amount of acetylcholine from getting activated, from getting pushed down to the end of that end plate, and so you don't get fade. When you have a partial block from sucks, if you have some twitches, theoretically all four of them should be the same. Now there is the whole issue with phase two block, but just in general, if you think of a regular succinylcholine block, you're either going to have no twitches or four equal twitches, but you shouldn't have any fade between the first and the fourth if you have multiple twitches. The reason you get fade when you have non-depolarizers on board is because the end plate can't mobilize that extra acetylcholine. So the first twitch uses up some of the acetylcholine at the motor end plate because those prejunctional receptors are blocked. Nothing activates them to move more acetylcholine to the end. And so now there's less acetylcholine to release on the second twitch, even less on the third, even less on the fourth. And so you get that fade. All right, let's start with succinylcholine, and then we'll move on to the non-depolarizers. So succinylcholine is really a simple molecule in a sense because it's just two acetylcholine molecules joined together. About one milligram per kilogram is a good way to remember a, a pretty reasonable dose. That will give total relaxation in about 60 seconds, one milligram per kilogram. The ED95 is somewhere around 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, but in general, doubling that to a milligram per kilogram is going to be the dose you will more likely use. So it is very fast. As I said, you're going to get relaxation in a minute or even a little less. 
and then you get pretty fast recovery. So assuming you have normal pseudocholinesterase, which is the enzyme that's going to break down the succinylcholine, you're going to get recovery, total recovery, somewhere around 10 minutes. And that's at least 90% strength back. There are a variety of conditions and drugs that can inhibit the activity of pseudocholinesterase, but it does, most of them do not actually prolong the activity of sucks very much because you can reduce the activity of pseudocholinesterase by 80% and still only prolong the sucks block by a couple of minutes, which you wouldn't really notice clinically. And so it takes a lot. Now, these are things like liver disease, being particularly old, um, being pregnant, all of these things can interfere with it. And then drugs like monoamine oxidase inhibitors, some um, chemotherapeutic drugs, uh, and even things like esmolol can inhibit pseudocholinesterase, but with very little clinical significance. One thing that is commonly tested, they love to test about this, is, of course, what happens if you have an abnormal type of pseudocholinesterase. And, of course, the dibucane test is what's always asked about. So the way this works is that dibucane, which is a local anesthetic, turns out it inhibits normal pseudocholinesterase by about 80%. But if you have an abnormal type of pseudocholinesterase, it will only inhibit that by about 20%. So people, of course, have two copies of the gene that makes pseudocholinesterase. If you are heterozygous, so you have one normal and one abnormal, then dibucane will inhibit your pseudocholinesterase by about 50 or 60%, which means your dibucane number is about 50 to 60. But if your both genes are abnormal, then dibucane will only inhibit your pseudocholinesterase by about 20%, so your dibucane number will be 20. And if you have two normal genes, so you have normal pseudocholinesterase, then your dibucane number will be 80 because you, your pseudocholinesterase is inhibited about 80% by dibucane. The reason this is confusing is because dibucane works better, does more inhibiting on normal pseudocholinesterase and does less inhibiting on abnormal, which is the opposite of what people would think. But the important thing to remember here is that dibucane inhibits normal pseudocholinesterase 80%, it inhibits heterozygous pseudocholinesterase about 50 to 60%, and it inhibits homozygous abnormal only 20%. Okay, So a dibucane number of 80 is normal, 20 is totally abnormal, 50 to 60 is in the middle. Clinically, this matters because... If your dibucane number is 50 or 60, then succinylcholine is going to be prolonged by somewhere around one and a half to two times. Whereas if you're homozygous, then the block you get from succinylcholine can be prolonged by up to eight hours. So that's a huge deal. You give sucks for a short case and you're done with the case and now your patient isn't waking up because unbeknownst to you, they actually are still in complete neuromuscular blockade and will be for the next six or seven hours. So that's a really big deal. If this is an undiagnosed symptom, a condition in somebody, then of course, you're just going to have to have it as a diagnosis of exclusion. You go through your normal differential of someone not waking up. And one of those final things on there, if you can't find any other reason, might be that they have abnormal pseudocholinesterase. Succinylcholine can have some cardiac effects. Usually it can have some bradycardic effect, uh, and that is more significant in people with high vagal tone, so like pediatric patients. And so often pediatric patients will get some atropine pretreatment before getting sucks to attenuate that potential for bradycardia. Interestingly, that bradycardia is actually more common if someone gets a second dose of sucks after a first dose, 
and very high doses can actually cause tachycardia, interestingly. So sucks is an interesting drug, but the common thing would be the bradycardia in people like kids with high, bradal, bra- uh, high vagal tone. Another very common fact and very important to know about succinylcholine, of course, is that it can cause hyperkalemia. On average, a dose of succinylcholine is going to increase someone's potassium by about 0.5 milliequivalents per deciliter. Now, that is assuming this is a normal person with normal junction. So they haven't had a stroke. They haven't had a burn, a crush injury. They haven't had a demyelinating disorder like Guillain-Barre. There are some interesting studies that actually suggest that in patients with severe metabolic acidosis or really severe intra-abdominal infections, that they can also get a more extreme hyperkalemia from a dose of succinylcholine. And there's some thought that 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 potassium may actually come from the gut in these patients, but there's, uh, that's certainly still experimental, and you're unlikely to be tested on that information. Trauma patients can have an increased risk of hyperkalemia, and the thought is that usually probably starts to, the increased risk starts about a week after the traumatic injury and then can last up to 60 days. So in general, someone who has had a traumatic injury and is now at least a week out, up to a couple months out, maybe best to avoid sucks in those patients. And then, of course, anybody with any sort of nerve injury, loss of nerve innovation, uh, someone with hemiplegia or muscular dystrophy or Guillain-Barre, these people are going to have that risk for what we talked about, those increased proliferation of uh, fetal acetylcholine receptors, uh, of those immature receptors that are much more likely to cause hyperkalemia. That risk starts as early as 48 hours after the injury and can last up to two years or more. So you need to be very careful because these are the highest risk patients. These are the ones who really can have such an extreme hyperkalemic response that they can have a cardiac arrest. Of course, you will hear about the increase in intraocular pressure, which you can get from succinylcholine. It is transient, lasts about six minutes, and Other than people with an open globe injury, it's well tolerated. So even during eye surgery, as long as they don't have an open globe, it's probably fine to use sucks. Increased intragastric pressure can happen, but it's certainly not true of everyone when they get sucks, and that can be prevented by giving a non-depolarizing, defasciculating dose first. And so we should just mention what that is. A defasciculating dose of a non-depolarizer is a little controversial, but the idea is that if you give a small dose, so for example, if you were to give about five milligrams of rocuronium, uh, you know, a minute or two before giving the succinylcholine, that that may uh, prevent some of the fasciculations, prevent the rise in intragastric intragastric pressure. Though, again, it is a little controversial and there are potential side effects. So obviously giving someone even a small dose of non-depolarizer can cause some weakness, could be distressing to patients, it could lead to their uh, inability to protect their airway, and so there's a lot of controversy about that. Certainly I would follow your local protocols when deciding whether to do it or not. Increased intracranial pressure can happen. No one really understands why. There's also a fair uh, percentage of people who will get pretty bad myalgias when they get a dose of sucks, so they wake up with a lot of muscle pain. It's not uh, clear exactly why this is either, uh, though it is partly but not completely able to be prevented by a defasciculating dose, so it helps some people, it doesn't help others, which again makes it a little confusing as to what's actually causing this. A lot of people get this, though. Some studies have shown up to 90% of people will get myalgias after getting sucks, but it really varies a lot, and it's more common in some patient populations. So outpatient surgery, so healthier people, women, 
active people. So you'd think, okay, people with more muscle mass maybe, but again, it's a little unclear. Another thing you'll hear about connected to succinylcholine is uh, masseter spasm. If it's isolated masseter muscle spasm, it can be an early sign of MH, but it's usually not. And so really, we don't want to use this as a reason to switch to a non-triggering anesthetic if there's no other signs. If the only thing you've got is isolated masseter spasm, then that's probably not enough. Again, follow the protocol at your place, but in general, the chances that if someone only has isolated muscle spasm that it's actually going to lead to MH if that's all that's going on is pretty low. Certainly if it's going on along with other signs, hypercapnia, uh, tachycardia, metabolic acidosis, fever, etc., that's a very different picture. I mentioned before that if you give a high enough dose of sucks or enough repeated doses, you can get a phase two block. How? What's the dose? Eh, it's a little unclear. Maybe something like five mg per kg, which is a huge dose. You would never need to give that much. But if you did, you could get this phase two block. And what that is is a dose of sucks that actually starts acting now like a non-depolarizer. So it acts longer. You get fade. Uh, and so that's something you would want to avoid if you can. And again, you'd never need to give five mg per kg as a single dose. Certainly, if you were giving repeated doses for some reason, you might reach that dose. If you decided to give succinylcholine after having given a reversal agent like neostigmine for a non-depolarizing blockade, you actually can really increase the duration of the succinylcholine block. It can be even tripled. You can end up with a 30 to 45-minute block. It takes about 90 minutes for the pseudocholinesterase, the one that's going to break down the sucks, to recover because it's inhibited by neostigmine, um, peridostigmine, et cetera. So if you use an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, and then for some reason after that decide to use sucks, so let's say you reverse someone at the end of a case with neostigmine and glycopyrrolate, 10 minutes later you get to the PACU and decide you need to reintubate, you give sucks, just know that sucks can last a lot longer than it would have. All right, let's move on to the non-depolarizers. There are two classes of non-depolarizers. There are the steroidal non-depolarizers. These are probably the ones you use most often. So vecuronium, rocuronium, also pancuronium, which is used a lot less than it maybe once was. And then there are the benzyl isoquinolinium blockers, which are your atricurium, cisatricurium, and mivacurium. So these are the two different categories. And as, as you probably know from practice, they act in different ways. They are uh, reversible in different ways. So, for example, the big, the big one you probably have, have come across is that Sugamidex will reverse vecuronium and rocuronium, but will not reverse atricurium and cisatricurium. When, if you have used cisatricurium, you've probably used it for patients with renal failure. And that's because it's eliminated, both atricurium and cisatricurium are eliminated by Hoffman elimination primarily, which is essentially, the way to think about this is it just falls apart. So it doesn't require an organ. It doesn't require any particular enzyme. It's actually a cleavage of a carbon-nitrogen bond, and it's just pH and temperature dependent. So it just happens. You don't even need an enzyme to do it. The nice thing about cisatricurium, as, composed, as compared to atricurium, is that it doesn't cause histamine release. So that was the issue with atricurium, but cisatricurium doesn't have that problem. Pancuronium, again, not really used very much, but if you were to use it, you should know it's also a vagolytic and an inhibitor of butyrocholinesterase or pseudocholinesterase. So it would, of course, prolong the action of succinylcholine if you used succinylcholine afterwards. Again, the two most common you're going to actually use on the steroidal side are rocuronium and vecuronium. Rocuronium is somewhere between 5 and 10 times less potent than vecuronium, and so that's why your intubating dose of rocuronium is about 0.6 mg per kg, and of vecuronium is somewhere around 0.1 or a little less. So the, the most common thing, of course, is to give anybody 
50 milligrams of rock uranium to induce uh, or to, to intubate because, of course, that's how it comes. At least in the United States, we get 50 milligrams in a vial. So it's easy just to give the vial. And vecuronium, once you reconstitute it, is 10 milligrams in a vial. So by far the most common dose, people get either 50 milligrams of rock uranium or 10 milligrams of vecuronium. Uh, but the actual ED95 for rock uranium is 0.3, and for vecuronium and cisaticurium, it's 0.05. So you double that to get your intubating dose. So doubling 0.3 for rock gets you the 0.6, and doubling 0.05. For vecin, cisaticurium gets you 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. Now, you may ask, why would we even use neuromuscular blocking drugs? What is the uh, advantage? And the answer is it makes intubation easier. It also reduces the rate of vocal cord damage from intubation uh, and then reduces the rate of having running into difficult intubations and running into complications like hoarseness post-intubation. So it basically makes it easier to intubate and therefore reduces the complications from intubation. All right, there's some really key uh, things to know here. So different muscle groups are more or less resistant to blockade. For example, it takes twice the dose to paralyze the diaphragm compared to the adductor pollicis muscle, which is where we're often checking twitches. So if you have no twitches in the thumb and the surgeon says the diaphragm's moving, they may be right because you can have no twitches in the thumb and still have a diaphragm that can move. The laryngeal muscles are more resistant than the adductor pollicis as well, but the upper airway muscles are more sensitive than the adductor pollicis. So you, that's why you may have what looks to you like pretty good twitches in the thumb, but your patient may not be able to protect their airway because their upper airway muscles may still be paralyzed or at least weak. And so that's why the really key thing here is that just because a patient can breathe with the tube in place doesn't mean that they're going to be able to protect their airway once the tube is out. So this is really key. You can't say, oh, look, they're pulling good tidal volumes on their own. Therefore, they must be strong. They don't need reversal. That would be a big mistake. They might have a perfectly capable, a diaphragm that's perfectly capable of pulling good tidal volumes, but they don't have the ability to protect their airway to stop themselves from obstructing because they still have weak upper airway muscles. So if you take the tube out because someone's pulling good tidal volumes and you disconnect them from the monitors and wheel them to the PACU, you get to the PACU and realize your patient's CO2 is now 120 because they weren't breathing under the weight of the PACU because they were obstructing. So it's really important to not trust just the fact that they're pulling good tidal volumes. All right, a couple quick notes on dosing. I mentioned for rock uranium, the standard intubation dose, 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. The rapid sequence intubation dose is double that, 1.2 milligrams per kilogram. Vecuronium and cisaticurium are the same, about 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. If you were going to do a rapid sequence intubation, you would also want to double that. Pancuronium, if you want to know it, 0.1 as well. Mivacurium, 0.2 to 0.25. And then when you're doing supplemental doses, so to maintain neuromuscular blockade, the rule of thumb here really is it never hurts to go low, right? You're never going to regret giving only 10 or 20 of rock or giving one or two of VEC as opposed to giving 50 more of rock and then having the surgeon tell you two minutes later that actually they're aborting the surgery. So you might as well go low. The official doses you'll find in a book are that a supplemental dose of rock should be about 0.1 milligrams per kilogram, and that for cisaticurium and vecuronium, about 0.02 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, 
infusions of rocuronium. Again, you're really going to titrate to the twitches that you want, but an infusion might start about 10 mics per kilo per minute of rock or one mic per kilo per minute of VEC, and that would get you ideally no twitches. If you wanted them to have one or two twitches, then you would decrease that. And then the duration. So a normal intubating dose of rocuronium of 0.6 milligrams per kilogram can vary quite a bit based on renal function and different individual patients, but in general will last somewhere around 35 to 45 minutes. 1.2 milligrams per kilogram, so a rapid sequence intubation dose of rocuronium will last maybe 75, 80 minutes. That's assuming normal renal function. can be a lot longer with impaired renal function. Vecuronium, a little longer, so maybe about 10 minutes longer than rock. Uh, Pancuronium is, of course, long, so uh, intubating dose of pancuronium can last 100 minutes or more. Mivacurium is short, so 15, 20 minutes. Cisatricurium at a normal normal intubating dose of 0.1 is a lot like VEC, so about 45 minutes to 50 minutes. Uh, at, in more, at a larger dose, uh, like a what might be a rapid sequence intubation dose of cisatricurium of 0.2 can last 70 to 80 minutes, and if you went all the way up to 0.4, it'll last 90 to 100 minutes. So sometimes, as you probably know, if you practice anesthesia, the um, we have the arms tucked uh, in the OR, and so we can't use the uh, thumb to measure twitches. So we'll be measuring twitches at the corrugator supercilii, which is the uh, muscle above the orbicularis oculi, so above the eye. That has that muscle has a similar onset depth and recovery as the larynx and the diaphragm. Um, so it's different than the abductor pollicis. So you have to be careful. It's a very robust muscle. You will get recovery there long before you get recovery of the upper airway muscles. So you certainly, even more than with the adductor pollicis, want to be careful that if a patient has good twitches at their uh, corrugator supercilii, that you don't assume that they're necessarily ready for extubation or that they don't need reversal. On the other hand, you don't need to wait until they've lost all twitches in the corrugator supercilii or even in the adductor pollicis to have optimal paralysis in the larynx. So as soon as you have obvious weakening in your adductor pollicis, uh, which again is more sensitive than the corrugator supercilii, then you probably are fine to go ahead and intubate. You don't have to sit there and wait till all twitches are gone. I mentioned before that succinylcholine, of course, is the fastest option if you're really trying to get a uh, rapid sequence intubation. It's going to be less than a minute. Rocuronium at 0.6 mg per kg, the onset is about 90 seconds. And if you do a rapid sequence dose, you can get it actually very close to suck. So right around a minute, maybe even a little less. So it can even be as fast as succinylcholine. It's just going to last a lot longer. Vecuronium at 0.1 mg per kg has an onset of around two and a half minutes. So it's lo- significantly lo- uh, slower onset than rocuronium. Cisatricurium at 0.2 is still 2.7 minutes. So you have to get up to 0.4 of cisatricurium even just to get it down to less than a two-minute onset. But again, remember, that's going to last a long time, 100 minutes or more. In terms of how these things are broken down, so we already said sucks is broken down almost completely by pseudocolonesterase, also known as butyrocholinesterase. Cisatricurium is mostly Hoffman elimination. There's a, maybe a little bit of renal. It's a little unclear, but certainly vastly by Hoffman elimination, which is that just kind of falling apart. Vecuronium is about half renal and half liver biliary. Rocuronium is about 25% renal and 75% liver biliary. Uh, and then mivacuronium is broken down by pseudocolonesterase as well, like sucks, uh, and that's what makes it pretty fast. 
All right, what are some adverse events that we haven't talked about yet? We talked about the hyperkalemic response of succinylcholine, and we talked about the histamine release that you can get with atricurium. Also, you can get that with mivacurium, and then that histamine release, of course, can cause hypotension. We also talked about the tachycardia that can go along with pancuronium. Oh, and the other thing, with the histamine release that you can get from uh, atricurium is you can actually get some bronchospasm uh, from that as well, from the mivacurium and atricurium. Another common test question is what's most likely to cause an anaphylactic reaction. So maybe they give you, they sketch out for you the scenario of an anaphylactic reaction in the OR and they ask what's the most likely cause and what they're trying to get you to, they're trying to trick you into saying, oh, it must be the antibiotic. But actually the most common cause of anaphylaxis in the OR are neuromuscular blockers. So keep that in mind. There are a variety of interactions between drugs. We already talked about the fact that some people give a defasciculating dose of a non-depolarizer prior to giving a dose of succinylcholine. In theory, you have to increase your dose of sucks if you want to get the same effect. So instead of one mg per kg, you might give 1.5 mg per kg if you do give a defasciculating dose of ROC or VEC. Volatile uh, anesthetics, volatile gases can potentiate the action of non-depolarizers and prolong their action a little bit. DES does that more than SIVO, which does it more than ISO. Uh, in in theory, it's not that clinically significant, but you might get asked it on a test. Hypothermia is a big deal. It will prolong the duration of non-depolarizers. In fact, the uh, recovery can decrease by about 10 to 15% for every degree uh, of hypothermia that you have. That's below a central temperature of 36. And this is actually most profound with cisatricurium and atricurium because it in, the cold interferes with Hoffman elimination. So that Hoffman elimination is partly temperature dependent, which means the hotter you are, the faster it happens, and the colder you are, the slower it happens. Magnesium, of course, potentiates non-depolarizing block, so it will increase the onset time and the duration. And there's a little controversy, a little uncertainty over what it does with succinylcholine. It may partially block a succinylcholine block, and calcium does the opposite. So calcium will shorten the duration of a blockade. Lithium prolongs the action of blockade. So if you have a patient on chronic lithium, you might want to reduce your dose of non-depolarizers. Local anesthetics can potentiate blocks. So if you have a patient, for example, on a lidocaine drip, you might want to check your twitches before redosing because they may have a little bit longer action from a dose of non-depolarizer. Patients on long-term anti-epileptics, uh, they can actually have resistance to neuromuscular blockade. Uh, VEC clearance can be doubled in patients, for example, on carbamazepine. And steroids can actually antagonize the effect of neuromuscular blocking drugs. So if you, if you have a patient on steroids or you gave a dose of steroids and you see them chewing through your neuromuscular blockade, that may be why. All right, let's talk about some points specific to certain populations. So we already mentioned in pediatrics, you want to be careful with sucks. If you are going to give it, you would want to pretreat with atropine. But often we avoid it uh, because if a patient, especially a young boy, were to have an unsuspected muscular dystrophy, they could have a cardiac arrest from hyperkalemia, develop rhabdomyolysis, etc. So you want to be very careful. Children, not infants, but young children, need higher doses of non-depolarizing drugs, uh, at least of the steroidals, not necessarily for atricurium and cisatricurium. Older patients, because they are going to have reduced renal hepatic function or both just even if they're in good shape but just by virtue of getting older um, probably will have uh, increased duration of action from non-depolarizers in obese patients uh, your neuromuscular blockers are going to have prolonged action 
um, if they're dosed on total body weight. So you actually want to dose them based on ideal body weight because their muscle mass is similar in an obese patient compared to a non-obese patient. And if you do that, if you dose it based on ideal body weight, your duration of action should be similar. Renal failure, of course, has a major effect on things like vecuronium uh, and rocuronium and can prolong it quite a bit. Cisatricurium, it doesn't matter because of the Hoffman elimination. And succinylcholine, as long as the potassium is okay, is going to have a normal duration of action, uh, assuming they have normal pseudocholinesterase. And remember, that rise in potassium that when you give a dose of sucks of 0.5 is transient. So as long as the K is okay, it'll go up a little, then it'll come back down. You just don't want to take someone who's already at 6 and jolt them up to 6.5. Liver failure is kind of interesting. Cirrhosis causes an increase in the volume of distribution, which means that it actually would shorten the duration of non-depolarizers. But then if liver function is impaired, that would prolong it. So it could go either way. A Interestingly, studies have shown a small dose of vecuronium can actually have a shorter duration of of action in a patient with liver failure, but a large dose can last longer. So it really just depends on how that balance plays out. Severe liver disease can actually reduce the uh, amount of pseudocholinesterase, and that can prolong both mevacurium and succinylcholine duration of action. And then there's this issue of ICU patients and whether using neuromuscular blockers in ICU patients can cause or worsen critical illness myopathy. It is uh, definitely there are multiple ways that muscle function can be affected, critical illness, uh, polyneuropathy, um, ICU myopathy. Uh, So it's definitely best, if at all possible, to avoid neuromuscular blockers in ICU patients. If you don't have to use them, don't use them. Certainly we're not using them just to you know, facilitate uh, ease of patient care or anything like that. If you have to use them, for example, with severe ARDS or if you're going to be intubating, then obviously you need to use them, but you want to be careful and avoid them when you can. Some people will tell you that you should use cisatricurium if you have to uh, use neuromuscular blocker in somebody in the ICU. That was the drug used in the big study uh, that showed advantage and mortality benefit to neuromuscular blockade and severe ARDS. And so if we're purely following the literature, then if we're doing that, we should use cisatricurium. But lots of places, because of cost, we'll use vecuronium instead. All right. So... The last thing, just to touch on uh, reversal. So again, Sugamidex, we've got a whole other podcast on. Um, for uh, the most common in any place I've ever been uh, before Sugamidex was around was to use neostigmine and glycopyrrolate. So just very quickly, again, neostigmine is a uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So by blocking acetylcholinesterase, it is allowing more acetylcholine to flood the neuromuscular junction, and then that is going to competitively inhibit rocuronium and vecuronium or whatever you're reversing, cisatricurium, uh, and let your uh, recovery take place. Some common misconceptions. So there, there is this belief out there that if you've given cisatricurium, you don't have to reverse it. That is wrong. Yes, it will go away on its own. So will rock and vec eventually. The point of cisatricurium is not that you don't have to reverse it. It's that you can use it in renal failure patients. So you definitely want to reverse whatever you've used. You can't use Sugamidex with cisatricurium. So if you use cisatricurium, you have to reverse it with neostigmine uh, or something, another acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So that's how it works. And again, because it causes acetylcholine uh, release everywhere and you don't want those effects on the gut or the heart, you use it along with an anti-muscarinic-like 
glycopyrrolate so that you get the action taking place only where you want it at the nicotinic receptors. The, the dose of neostigmine is 70 mics per kilo up to a max of 5 milligrams. And the dose of glycopyrrolate to go with it is between 0.1 and 0.15 milligrams per kilogram. So the common thing that we're taught is give 5 milligrams, which is usually 5 cc's of neostigmine, and then match the volume. So give 5 cc's of the 0.2 milligrams per ml dose of glycopyrrolate. So 5 and 5, right? That's very common. And what that is is 5 milligrams of neostigmine and 1 milligram of glycopyrrolate. The problem with that is it's a little bit of an overdose of the glycopyrrolate. You will get tachycardia from that dose. Usually that's fine, and if your patient can handle some transient tachycardia, it's fine. But if you want to try to avoid some of that tachycardia, you want to reduce that dose of glycopyrrolate. So you might give 5 milligrams of neostigmine with 0.8 milligrams of glycopyrrolate, or even 0.7 milligrams of glycopyrrolate. You can kind of play around with it and find the dose that you think is most hemodynamically stable. You can use other acetylcholinesterase inhibitors like pyridostigmine, and you can use that with atropine. Those uh, onsets match up just like the neostigmine glycopyrrolate matches up. I've never actually used that, and I've never seen it done, but that is also acceptable. And there may be some other places, institutions, or countries where that's more common than neostigmine glycopyrrolate. But that is the most common way to reverse when you don't have um, when you don't have sugamidex is to use uh, an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor and an anti-muscarinic. It is always better to err on the side of reversal rather than not. Even if it's been a few hours since you last gave VEC or ROC, you still should reverse. If you test and a patient has four strong twitches and you can't identify any fade, we are very bad at identifying fade. So you can't say just because it doesn't look like there's fade to you or it doesn't feel like there's fade to you that that patient is fully recovered. If you really think they've got four strong twitches, you probably can give them half a dose of, of reversal, maybe three milligrams of neostigmine. And this is, of course, for an adult who's at least 70 kilos, maybe three milligrams of neostigmine and 0.4 milligrams of glycopyrrolate. But you want to give something because there's definitely increased rates of respiratory complications in patients who don't get reversal. Uh, now, if it's been 10 hours since they last got rever- last got neuromuscular blockade, or if you have an accelerometer, something that actually is much better than humans at measuring and can tell you for sure they have greater than 90% recovery, maybe that's different. Follow the protocols at your institution. But in general, don't assume that because a patient is moving or a patient can lift their head or a patient doesn't seem to have fade on the neuromuscular monitor, or a patient is breathing on their own, do not assume that that means they are fully recovered and safe to extubate with no reversal. All right, that is it for today. Check out the website, acrac.com. You can leave a comment. Let us know. Is this how you use neuromuscular blockade? How's it done? Do you use neostigmine glycopyrrolate? Do you use sugamidex? How do you reverse? What do you think about uh, everything we've discussed? We can all learn from what you have to say when you leave comments on the website. You can access all the episodes. If you want to go back and check out that Sugamidex episode, check it out at acrac.com. If you are a fan of the show, take a moment, go to iTunes. You can leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show when they're looking for an anesthesia podcast. And, of course, 
If you are interested or willing to help support the making of the show, check out patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even just a dollar or two makes a big difference and is greatly appreciated. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful start to your 2018 for the ACRAC podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.